another edition of Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I am your host, Brad Soboleski. And this edition, I have an interview with Dr. Ben Carey, who is an attending physician in emergency medicine here at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, ben is a national leader with an interest in rapid sequence intubation and airway management in pediatric patients. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Brad. So, first of all, I wanted for you to let my audience know a little bit about your work surrounding airway management in the ED, specifically how we can use process improvement to help us do a better job during RSI. Well, the first thing to understand about my work is that it's really our work. I work as a part of a committee here at Cincinnati Children's in the Division of Emergency Medicine called the Medical Resuscitation Committee. Um, that committee was formed in 2008 to mirror trauma services, to provide the same sort of uh, quality assurance, peer review, educational, and research activities that trauma services provide to trauma patients. We have about 4,000 patients come through our trauma bay every year, and two-thirds of those patients are medical. Uh, and prior to 2008, we had no coordinated system to monitor the care they were receiving or, or improve it. And so everything I've done from an airway standpoint and continue to do is uh, through that committee. Uh, and so it's really a group effort. It's a multidisciplinary committee. There are nurses and physicians uh, and ad hoc. There are pharmacists and respiratory therapists and others that join us. From an airway standpoint, much like a lot of the work with the committee, we began to get worried in 2007 or eight partially because of our own experience as clinicians and also uh, by watching or observing um, our colleagues uh, take care of patients in the trauma bay, we began to get worried that we were not doing a good enough job with airway management and specifically with rapid sequence intubation. We had at that time about 120 kids a year, uh, maybe about 140 actually at that time, undergoing intubation and a full 85% of them we're um, having RSI or getting RSI done. RSI, and that's consistent with the literature, RSI. If you are not in full arrest, RSI, and you're in a, in a critical care setting or a um, emergency department, you're likely having some version of rapid sequence intubation. So we were worried that rapid sequence intubation wasn't being done well. And because of our unique setup here in our four trauma bays where we had, we have, a, um, an audiovisual system that records 24 hours a day uh, every case, we were able to watch a year's worth of uh, patient intubations of, of patients undergoing RSI in the trauma bay. And that study confirmed our suspicions. Um, just to give an example, about 60% of patients experienced at least one adverse effect. That included 33% of patients who had at least one episode of oxyhemoglobin desaturation. Uh, we had a 50% first attempt failure rate with 25% of patients requiring three or more attempts. Yeah, which is much higher than expected based on previous research. That's exactly right. So at the time, and there, there's a, there are quite a few more studies now that I would say support, at least categorically support our study findings. But at the time, the studies that were out there for emergency medicine for kids were really pretty limited, and limited primarily to chart review or self-report, and those studies suggested that RSI was very safe and very successful for kids in an emergency department, and our study was, was, was very much in disagreement with that. And we believe, because we used video, and because we're a high-volume center, 
that our, our results are likely more representative for general experience. So, so not good, not, not good from a process standpoint. And I didn't even go into, and I won't go into all of the other various and sundry process issues. We found problems all the way from medication selection and administration through the confirmatory process and beyond. So not, not good. So we began to obviously, after that study was published, try to make things better, and we did. In 2012, we designed a checklist-based improvement initiative to make RSI safer and more successful. We started testing our checklist and several other interventions in the summer of 2012. And within six months, our desaturation rate went from 33% to 16%. Our, um, and our process got far better. So pretty much every way we measured performance of the process, from the frequency of prolonged laryngoscopy attempts to the frequency of having an unapproved person perform the laryngoscopy attempt, all you know, various aspects of the process improved. And that improvement has been sustained. So we continue to monitor every case and watch every case by video. And over the almost four years now since we began testing those interventions, all of our outcome measures and process measures have sustained or actually improved. We have, we've in some places got even better uh, over that period of time. Which is fantastic given the fact that the ED is a place where staff turns over, things change, construction happens. Correct. That's exactly right. So there, there are many, many factors that impair high-quality teamwork and team performance in our resuscitation area. And one of those is we have, I think we counted one time, seven or 800 potential providers for any given patient. So it is very challenging to get reliable performance of any critical care process in RED. And so that's absolutely right. To overcome that obstacle really is a success. And there's likely a point where you hit, you know, acceptable perfection or you, you can't improve anymore. Um, certainly there's going to be some patients that, you know, will have difficult airways to begin with or be more likely to desaturate. And, you know, there's limited ability to improve uh, upon already great gains. But do you think that there's any areas to target in the future where we can continue to do a better job with RSI? I do. Probably the best way to answer that question is to explain why we think we got better to begin with. Um, and we believe that we're actually writing a paper right now describing the sustainability of the interventions. Uh, we've written papers, obviously, about the original uh, problem, a couple in between, and then the improvement project, but we haven't really described the sustainability of the, uh, uh, of the measures uh, or of the interventions. And based on that work, the sustainability um, analysis, we think that the following things were really essential. The first thing is that we convinced people there was a problem. So because we were using video, because this is a really common, the most common critical procedure we perform, because our colleagues, meaning nurses, RTs, physicians, et cetera, everyone, had experienced recently probably at least one, if not multiple, problems with an RSI, we made a very compelling case both to our friends and colleagues and to the divisional and hospital leadership that there was a problem. And then we sought to not change or not improve directly how good people were at laryngoscopy and intubation. That is the single most common thing that people suggest 
when we describe this problem for them and when they tell us that they, they have a similar problem in their setting. Well, how do we get people to be better at putting a tube in the trachea? While important from a system standpoint, it is, I would say, you are likely to be slow in improving and maybe not be able to improve if that's your primary focus. Yeah, intubations in children are perhaps surprisingly to many people few and far between. Yes, they're few and far between. There are few clinical, ex you know, we, we've, I think, definitively established that you don't have enough clinical experience to get really good at it based on clinical experience mm -hmm. alone. Yeah. So we sought to standardize preparation and the safety of the procedure rather than make people better at it. I think that's a really important thing to understand. And the focus of the standardization was around decreasing what I would call failing or unsafe apneic time. Mm -hmm. So certainly with a rapid sequence intubation with paralysis or neuromuscular blockade, you have to have some degree of apnea if the patient isn't already apneic. But we want to minimize the amount, obviously, the amount of time that they're apneic, and most of the problems for the patient are due to prolonged apnea. Um, so we really focused on minimizing, recognizing that a given laryngoscopy attempt was failing, the point of that being to intervene more quickly and minimize the duration of unsafe or what we what kind of called failing apnea. Mm -hmm. And so just to give an example, one of the one of the two or three key parts of the checklist and the interventions that we put into place is we, we set specific time limits on a specific time limit on how long a given laryngoscopy attempt could happen. That's 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. And we put a timer in, into the bay that's preset to 45 seconds. So it gives this sort of audible adjunct alert uh, or warning to the team that the time has gone off and, and we need to stop that attempt. Yeah. Having been at the head of the bed, it's certainly one of the situations where it either seems like no time has passed at all or it's taking forever when you have a laryngoscope blade in a patient's mouth and you're not able to, to find the cords. That's exactly right, Brad. <laughs> so you, you, it's almost impossible to not have the cognitive burden, the cognitive load in one of these cases be high. Although one of the main points of the checklist and the interventions is to reduce the cognitive burden, it's inevitably going to be higher than average. And when it's higher than average, one of the effects of that is you lose, one of the well-described effects of that is you lose the accurate sense of time. Mm -hmm. And so having someone external to the, the procedure both be monitoring how long it's going and using a, 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 you know, a timer with an audible alarm to do that turned out to be really effective. Yeah. And in our case, a, a second physician and a respiratory therapist both being available for that. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, And it's, it, it's at least those two people. Mm -hmm. What we found is, and one of the other, the other things I hadn't mentioned yet that I think is essential to understanding why we were successful is the culture has changed. So that's partly based on describing a problem that people actually agree is a problem. But for that and other reasons, we believe we've changed the culture around how people do RSI to the point that when we watch people do RSI now, they're really using our checklist as more of a confirmatory guide to what they're already doing. Whereas before, it was driving more reliable and high quality process. Now people are more naturally doing it uh, and just using the checklist to confirm it. The last thing I would say that's important to understand about why we were successful, and that will lead me back to your question about where else can we improve, 
is the idea of stopping attempts before things get too bad. And this this relates directly to minimizing the apneic time or the unsafe apneic time. There are a couple studies that, that support this this idea. And the cutoff that we originally use, and I think most people use, is somewhere around 90%. So mm-hmm. you let a patient who was in the high 90s or 100 drop down to 90, and then we're going to stop our attempt and reoxygenate them. Good old oxyhemoglobin dissociation. Yes, that's exactly right. And the first problem with that is simply from a practical standpoint, with the Quality Improvement Project, our main outcome was desaturation. So our main outcome was a saturation dropping less than 90%. So if we're waiting until the patient is less than 90%, we're guaranteeing ourselves our negative outcome, Mm -hmm. which made no sense. So by setting, and our cutoff right now is 95%, so the patient drops below 95% when they were above it before RSI started, that's when we want to stop them. Mm-hmm. By doing that, you not only do you have a chance of stopping them to go below 90, more importantly, you have a chance, a good chance, of stopping them below they, before they go to profound desaturation mm-hmm. where bradycardia and pulseless arrest starts yep. to become a risk. Once they fall off that cliff, they tend to fall pretty fast. Yes. So if I was going to tell people to do nothing else, and I'm not mentioning another key intervention that we that we uh, instituted, which was the use of the Storacemac videolaryngoscope for all intubations. If I was going to tell people to do nothing else to mirror our results, I would say use a Stores or some videolaryngoscope every time. Don't go longer than 45 seconds, and if you drop less than 95%, stop. Yeah. If you do those three things... Um, you don't necessarily some people you have to have a minimal level of competence Mm -hmm. so you certainly can't let people who have no clue what they're doing with a blade or a tube innovate that's frankly ridiculous Mm -hmm. but if you have a person of minimal competency and you do those three things you can keep the patient safe however many attempts it takes Mm -hmm. to successfully innovate them so coming back to your original question where are the holes still we now are at the point where our process is tight enough, although you know, there's bits and pieces of it we could still get better at. Our process is reliably performed enough that I think now we need to focus more on, okay, well, how do we get pediatric emergency medicine fellows especially, how do we accelerate their acquisition of a higher level of laryngoscopy and innovation skill to fill that gap? One of the interesting side effects of our improvement project, although it wasn't the intent of it, our first attempt success rate went from 50 to 75, and our success rate within the first two attempts went from roughly 70 or 72% to 90%. Mm-hmm. So we got better at doing the procedure, even though we didn't train a single person to be a better laryngoscopist. Yeah. There was no simulation-based airway training, none of that stuff. Yeah. So having already gotten people better just with the process, we now think that to fill that gap, to go from a 16% desaturation rate to less than five, which is kind of our overall goal, Mm -hmm. we need to get people better quicker at putting the tube in the trachea. So to me, that's the biggest remaining hole. Mm -hmm. And I think it's now with the American Board of Pediatrics and other uh, bodies saying, or at least pediatric residents, that intubation is not a required procedure as it had been for many years in the past. This becomes more of a, a selective procedure for residents going into emergency medicine or critical care. But for residents in emergency medicine, I mean, this is day-in, day-out practice and an area that generates a lot of anxieties. Well, there's no doubt about that. And I think that for pediatric residents especially, and our work here I think reflects this priority, my belief is that it's more important for pediatric residents to acquire 
innovation or airway management knowledge, and specifically for rapid sequence innovation, to acquire a basic understanding of what rapid sequence innovation is mm -hmm. and how do you do it well yeah. and where are the common failure points. It's, I, my, my opinion is that the incremental relative value of learning that or filling some of those knowledge gaps is way more important for a senior pediatric resident who wants to go into critical care or wants to go into emergency medicine than one more tube. Mm -hmm. You know, one more tube in the bay, although it has unique educational value, meaning a tube in the bay is not the same thing as a tube in the OR, mm -hmm. um, successfully navigating an airway under stressful circumstances for a critically ill or injured patient, mm -hmm. especially a child, is way different. And what, I, my opinion, is your brain's response to either a failed or a successful experience is different categorically than what happens in the operating room or in a simulated setting. So those are, those are important experiences for them. But the relative value of one experience, which is all any single pediatric resident is likely to get, mm -hmm. given how unusual they are, versus learning about the RSI process and meaningfully participating in it, and understanding, again, its common failure points in key mm -hmm. or critical aspects is way greater yeah. than just one tube. Because the way that the, the checklist sets things up is it's not just kid needs a tube, let's give them these medicines and then put in the tube. It talks about all of the potential problems pre-intubation from the difficult airway to how to adequately pre-oxygenate to how to adequately stage and prepare the patient through drugs, through successful attempts, through failed attempts, post-intubation medicines. I mean, these are incredibly important things to talk about when you're dealing with a sickest child. And yeah, if you work in primary care pediatrics, you're never going to intubate a patient, but you can recognize a patient that potentially has a difficult airway in your clinic and, you know, get help immediately or, you know, at least bag mask them to prevent, you know, desaturation to provide support. Yeah, that brings up a couple of important points. So one of the essential things to understand about our checklist is that it's designed to be what I would call a real checklist, a real procedural checklist. Mm -hmm. So thinking of checklist as a subset of a broader category, cognitive aid, the intent of the checklist is, again, to reduce the cognitive load on the team leaders and the team in general, freeing their brains up for things they don't need to be thinking about, reducing the cognitive burden, freeing their brains up to think about the things that require thought, especially the dynamic things that may, may be unexpected. So if yeah. your brain's all caught up in tube size and medication dose and blade size and these sorts of things and patient preparation sort of things, um, it may not be free to handle the unexpected or the difficult. Yeah, because you're not doing RSI in a kid coming in for their well check. Right. You're doing RSI in a child who has a significant head injury or who is septic. Right. That's yeah. exactly right. And so you're thinking about other things too. The checklist was also designed to really focus the team on doing the things that keeps a patient safe. So when a plane's going down, the checklists that are used are not comprehensive in the sense that they are telling the pilot all the things they need to do to continue to navigate or fly the plane. They're telling the pilot the things they need to do to keep him from crashing in that moment. So we really went to school on that concept, and a lot of this a lot of the checklist development work, at least conceptually or theoretically, was uh, derived from the Checklist Manifesto book by Atul Gawande. We really wanted to focus the checklist on keeping the patient safe, as I've said many times, but we also wanted to make it very directive and very practical. 
a huge flaw of a lot of airway checklists, actually, that have been published in the last five years is they are essentially a list of all the equipment and different aspects of the procedure mm -hmm. that you have to do. Yeah. So kind so of just like a base shopping list almost. Right, yeah. right. It's like an outline uh, from a textbook description mm -hmm. of all aspects of the procedure. Yeah. And that's not, what it, that's not a checklist. I mean, it's a checklist in the sense that it's a list you can check, but it's not a cognitive aid. Mm -hmm. That is not a cognitive aid. When you when you are in the moment, especially in a critical care setting or an emergency department setting, you need something that fits organically and naturally into the process that drives a reliable process that reduces your cognitive burden, again, freeing you up to do the things that require thought or think about the things that require thought. So our checklist was designed, and I believe one of the reasons it was successful is it actually helped people do that. It actually reduces cognitive burden. People use it and Another important thing to understand about our work and stands, I think, in stark contrast to 90% of quality improvement projects is because we use video, because we watched every single case with our own eyes, we can tell you that the checklist was used, that it was at the bedside, that people were verbalizing it, what parts they were verbalizing, and how were, based on the checklist, the team leaders interacting with the team. So when I say the checklist was used, I know that for 90, truly, for 90 plus percent of our patients, the checklist is used in a meaningful way every time. Yeah. So, and there's a process by which we will get follow-up after each RSI case from you and other members of the team to tell us where things went right, provide space for questions and clarification, and you know feedback on future performance, which is incredibly helpful in the long run. That's right. So you're getting at one of the main reasons we think the interventions have continued to be used at a high level, and our process and outcome measures have continued to stay at a high, le at a high level because we have a system of feedback. So you're right, we, we, while we watch every video, we have a standard feedback form we fill out and we send that out to the key providers mm -hmm. after every case. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think two final questions you know, with regard to, to the incredible work that you've done so far. Um, number one, what's next? What's next? So what's next is to write this darn sustainability paper and get that off my to-do list. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, more seriously, to help try to communicate people how, um, at least in our setting, for a process like this, how you can be successful, how it appeared we were successful, or why. And then we want to get better. So our aim when we started the improvement process was to get desaturation percentage down, meaning the frequency of patients with desaturation down to less than 10%. And we're not there, we're at 16% right now. So we have more work to do. And um, so that the, after that paper's published, when we get done with that work, we're going to transition into another round of improvement. And mm -hmm. the focus there is going to be on refining the checklist, taking some things off of it that we don't feel, or we feel no longer need to be on it. Mm -hmm and focusing on our pediatric emergency medicine fellows who perform about 70% of our first attempts mm -hmm. to try to find ways to accelerate their acquisition of a higher level of mm -hmm. skill with intubation. Yep. And then part two is, you know, for those of the listeners of the podcast that are just getting into emergency medicine or doing their first rotations or a new nurse, um, and they don't know a lot about RSI or rapid sequence intubation, how do you recommend that they gain more experience? Are there papers that they should read? Are there things that they should look for in the emergency department? Right. Well, the first thing is to, and you can't really, 
you know, you can encourage people to do this, but they sort of choose to do it or they don't choose to do it is be self-reflective to mm -hmm. be your, you know, your own, I would say, best critic. And when you have difficult cases, especially that bother you to think really thoroughly why they bother you and to base your reading on the, the actual problems that you've experienced. Mm -hmm specific references so the the bible or what i consider to be the bible of emergency airway management is the is the manual of emergency airway management written by uh, ron wall we just wrote a review of pediatric rapid sequence intubation and that's a pretty good gives, gives you a pretty good overview of our work and the kind of most common pitfalls in pediatric rsi that's not a bad one to read mm -hmm. anything that rich levitan publishes around airway management in general is always worth reading uh, and he has some recent articles about oxygenation and other aspects of airway management that I would recommend. Yeah. Ben, thank you for your fantastic work thus far and for sitting down for this edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. You bet, Brad. Thanks for having me.